Radio Aspiral is a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media. Presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney, it covers a host of topics from international media, publishing, aviation, and technology. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. You're very welcome to uh, Radio Aspiral 2019, brand new season, episode 11. Let's take it away. to be back um, we're going to be talking our topic tonight uh, once again is Malaysia Airlines flight uh, MH370 and we have uh, a great guest and a very interesting discussion uh, lined up for you uh, talk to you about that in a second First time, you're very welcome. Uh, our guest tonight will be uh, Christina Pocorna. Um, she's uh, an investigator and is investigating uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. Um, she recently took a trip to the Maldives. Again, we'll tell you about that when we get closer to the actual interview. It's uh, great to be back um, for episode 11. As I told you, our topic tonight is uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. 
uh, I always tend to do this at the start of a kind of a new season um, Malaysia Airlines flight uh, MH370 being the topic tonight it was a scheduled uh, international passenger flight operated by Malaysia Airlines that disappeared on the 8th of March 2014 while flying from Kuala Lumpur International Airport Malaysia to its destination Beijing capital uh, airport uh, the crew of this Boeing 777-200ER aircraft last communicated with air traffic control around 38 minutes after takeoff when the flight was over the South China Sea at a waypoint known as Agari. The aircraft uh, was lost from air traffic control um, SSR radar screens minutes later but was tracked by military primary radar for a further hour deviating westwards from its planned flight path crossing the Malay Peninsula and the Andaman Sea. It left radar range approximately 200 nautical miles northwest of Penang Island in the northwest of Malaysia with all 227 passengers and 12 crew aboard presumed dead. The disappearance of Flight 370 was the deadliest incident involving a Boeing 777 and the deadliest in Malaysia Airlines history until tragically it was surpassed in both regards by Malaysia Airlines flight uh, MH17 four months later. The search for the missing uh, airplane which became the most costly in aviation history focused initially on the South China Sea and the Andaman Seas. Before analysis of the aircraft's automated communication with an Imarsat satellite identified a possible crash site somewhere in the southern Indian Ocean. Several pieces of marine debris confirmed to be from the aircraft washed ashore in the western Indian Ocean during 2015 and 2016. To date more than 30 pieces of suspected debris, some confirmed, some not confirmed, both external and internal have been recovered and analysed by the Annex 13 safety investigation team. Two official subsea searches have been undertaken by Fugro and later Ocean Infinity over the past five years covering almost 250,000 square kilometres of the Indian Ocean. Both have failed to locate the resting place of the aircraft and the 239 souls on board. Now the disappearance of flight MH370 has been described as one of the greatest aviation mysteries of all time. Relying mostly on analysis of data from the Imersat satellite and discovered debris on the western coast of Africa and its surrounding islands, multiple theories and scenarios have been put forward. From possible hijacking to crew involvement and multiple other scenarios of technical failures. The Malaysian Ministry of Transport's full report from July 2018 was inconclusive and could not rule out third party involvement, but it highlighted the Malaysian air traffic controller's failures to attempt to communicate with the aircraft shortly after its disappearance. In the absence of a definitive cause of this disappearance, safety recommendations and regulations of the air transport industry citing flight MH370 have been intended mostly to prevent a repetition of the circumstances 
associated with the loss and I guess without really knowing what exactly happened flight MH370 it's difficult to know how those recommendations and revised regulations and safety implications can help to prevent this happening again. Now just before I talk to you about our uh, guest tonight um, just very quickly uh, Radio Spoil is a global internet broadcast in audio and uh, visual our focus is on multiple different areas publishing, aviation, technology and we consider other aspects uh, we are available on Twitter and Facebook www.radioaspoil.com is our website all our podcasts and videocasts go out on uh, platforms like iTunes, uh, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube multiple other um, platforms now let's um, let's move on to our guest tonight our guest tonight is uh, Christina Pokorna I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Christina Christina is from the Czech Republic an IB diploma student with a variety of interesting in interests ranging from natural sciences biology, chemistry, astronomy, to aviation safety, travelling and art for children. She started her career as an artist at the age of 11 when she wrote and illustrated a children's book and was featured on a popular TV show which won her the 2014 Golden Nut Award for Talented Children. She went on to develop a children's fable comic about science for a magazine. She won a scholarship for a CTY summer program at Princeton. However, ultimately she decided instead to undertake a course in biotechnology at the Roger Williams University. Christina Pocona speaks three languages, Czech, English and French, and has attended theoretical courses for ultralight flying. At a young age she developed an interest in aviation safety she had studied the case of missing airlines uh, flight MH370 for the past five years. During that time, she has accumulated con contacts with volunteer specialists from all over the world who work in their free time to help solve the mystery of MH370. In February 2019, she travelled to the Maldives to interview eyewitnesses who reported seeing a low-flying aircraft consistent with the airline livery of MH370 on the morning of March the 8th 2014. Now I think the next thing we should do now is go and talk to uh, Christina. Okay welcome back to uh, Radio Spoil. Uh, our guest uh, Christina uh, Pocona has uh, joined us. Um, you're very welcome Christina. Well thank you. I'm glad uh, to meet you. And I'm delighted that you're the uh, the first guest, I think, uh, uh, first and um, appropriate guest to, uh, to start our new 2019 season of uh, Radio Spoil Off. Um, Christina, I suppose I have uh, already given um, viewers and listeners an introduction to yourself. I, I always like to just spend a few minutes uh, uh, with, with my guest uh, just sort of introducing themselves. So I suppose... Uh, 
I, I think without further addition, I can certainly say you're the youngest guest we've uh, we've had on Radio Aspile. Um, well, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so, look, tell me a little bit about yourself. First of all, I'm sure you don't mind me saying that. Um, uh, you live in Prague, do you? Yes, I do. Okay, and for people who are sort of further afield around the uh, the world, that that's in the uh, the Czech Republic. Just tell me, tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself growing up, what sort of interests you had, you know, what you got up to, what you did, studies, that kind of thing? Well, I think in here it's relevant to say, like, to focus only on aviation because I do a lot of things. I, I understand that. And, and again, just for the guests, uh, yourself and myself have known each other uh, for a little time, not a huge amount of time, but for a little time we, we've known it since probably last year. Uh, so, in that case, then, tell me a little bit about your where where did the interest in aviation start? Well, I would say I've been I've been traveling since I was a little kid. I think my first travel on an airplane was when I was only a few months old, probably, or less than a year, definitely. And so, yeah, traveling in an airplane was was my life from the very beginning but when I was like eight perhaps or nine I found this great TV series called Mayday Air Crash Investigations I think it, it has a number of different names that uh, people might notice I think is it Australia Air Disasters um, Air Crash Investigation I think in the UK and a lot of European countries so people might straight away know but I think yes in Canada it's a Canadian made program in Canada and the US it's Mayday sorry go on yes. some people label it as one of the greatest series documentaries ever recorded I was I would also say so and yes for some reason when I was a little kid, it totally like pulled me in. It's I found it so interesting. I mean, talking about such hobby was strange because a lot of it. It's like uh, yeah, okay. Can you stop talking about that? Like we, you've been talking about that for the last half an hour. So that, that's it. I said. I said. Yeah, it's. What what I love about young people getting into this general subject, whether it's Malaysia Airlines or just generally um, uh, the aviation industry, it's great to see young people getting involved in it because it's not necessarily something we associate with a lot of young people. A lot of the people I know who've sort of from even from many years got involved in in aviation at some level, whether it's just simply an interest and in reading about it or, or watching uh, documentaries on it. Um, they tend to be, shall we say, more in more mature years. That that, that sort of uh, geeky sort of idea of the plane spotter uh, kind of person. Uh, but certainly, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think I'm seeing an awful lot more young people getting involved in this area and just having a general interest in it. So anyway, that, that that's what got you into to aviation. Um, I suppose let's let's really push into um, the, the, the program itself. Um, now, that leads us to, okay, so 
you've had an interest in um, aviation. How did the interest in Malaysia Airlines MH370 come about? I'm, I'm sort of taking you back to that time because that would have been five years ago for you, well, for all of us, but five years ago for you. Well, perhaps it is interesting to say what I was doing on that day. Actually, the eighth of Mar the eighth of March, twenty fourteen, yeah, is, is my mother's birthday. So I was baking a cake for my mother for her birthday party, and I had the TV on, and there, there went the news that an airplane has gone missing, and of course, since I am involved in aviation and investigation of air disasters. I always listen to such reports in the TV because it is something that interests me. And at the time, it was nothing more than just another air crash. And I had no idea what will happen. Exactly. Well, where we we'll be five years down the line, still asking many of the same questions we were asking uh, on that on that day. And. Um, just for any uh, viewers who perhaps haven't um, listened to our previous episodes on this subject, um, just just bring us a little bit up to date where we are with the investigation uh, now uh, as of um, March 2019. I, I know this is actually, we're, we're very close to the uh, remembrance date, the five-year remembrance date. Um, so just... Bring us up to date where we are. We've kind of covered uh, the, uh, previously in, in programs um, the previous ocean affinity search in the southern Indian Ocean, and prior to that, we we also have discussed the uh, the Fugro uh, worldwide search uh, in the southern Indian Ocean. So just bring us up to date where where we are. It, uh, uh, sort of personally for me, I, I kind of think we're in a, a sort of static uh, situation with the with the investigation at the moment. There, there appears to be no momentum at the moment. Well, since the official search officially ended in 2018 and the matter was somehow closed by the publishing of the final report. Oh, well, the, full, the, full, the full report, as, as they refer to it as. Yes. In June 2018, that is sort of right now with what we have and what we know, the most we can do. Like, the officials have nothing to work with anymore. I've investigated all the clues and now they just sort of terminated their work. Yeah, we're certainly aware that um, certainly what we've heard privately is uh, what's in these investigations, it's run by what's called an Annex 13 uh, safety investigation team which runs under regulations that uh, and a charter that uh, ICAO uh, an international aviation um, body uh, sets down that all investigations, no matter what part of the world they are, have to work to. Um, and, and privately, we we have already formally been told that um, that Annex 13 team has 
in essence disbanded that their contracts as it were uh, for the Malaysian government uh, ended on the 31st of December 2018 um, which kind of leaves us all asking the question well who who's actually investigating you know it, it should tomorrow we find a piece of debris washed up on the East African coast it, what happens who's who's going to take control of that is it going to be um, the Malaysian uh, civil authority you know uh, under the auspices of the, the government what, like what happens um, let's focus a little bit now on um, let's, let's essentially go back in time take us back to um, what we spoke about before Agari Agari is a waypoint um, in the uh, South China Sea, uh, off the coast of, uh, quite a bit off the coast of um, Malaysia. So I just want to, you to take us back to what we believe, at least based on the evidence that we have, uh, occurred um, when things started to go wrong. Well, on, the issue is that until... Basically, until Igari, everything was normal. Mm -hmm. The flight was proceeding, the crew was communicating with the air traffic control. Nothing seems to be wrong in the aircraft's performance. I, up until, I would say, uh, 1707, Universal Time Zone. And that is when the last... The last... Um, the, the last uh, official report, case. as it were, that this, this is what's, ACARS. what's ACARS, which is a regular reporting tool that the, the, the aircraft is, is equipped with. Uh, generally, it, it sends a report roughly, I think it's every, usually once the aircraft noses into the air, there, there's one sent, and then the net, it's about a half an hour later, which, as you say, was around 1707 uh, UTC. And that, that report Malaysian was sent. And, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. 30 minutes, you said. Yeah. This report, this is an automatic report which the airplane sends to the, the airline's headquarters about the air, and it contains information about the aircraft's performance, such as altitude, speed, the fuel remaining, and also some possible defects. So yeah, if, if there's a defect yeah. or a problem with the plane, that will that's usually prompted in a message uh, in that report as well. That that sent that look, you know, there's a maybe there's a, an engine that's showing a slight overheating or you know, something. It could yeah. be something minor, the but of it, this it's flat. Yes. So the the crew, technical crew of the airline would be alerted and would be ready to fix the plane as fast as possible to return it to the service. Now, after this report, the crew, like, everything was still going normal. We do not know if the ACARS was working afterwards. Like, at the, ne the next report that was supposed to come did not come, so we know that yeah, we, 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 did, we didn't get a report at 1737 UTC as normal, which yeah. should should have been uh, expected. However, just talk us through, the, just in and around from um, 1719 UTC, uh, that's when things started to go awry. Yeah, 
So just talk us, talk to viewers through what was happening then, or what may have been happening then. Well, what the first thing that was abnormal happened at 1719, which is the point where the crew lost communication, or like that was the point where the communication between the ground and the plane was lost. It was, it was at the point where, on uh, the handover point, which this, is the moment. This, for, for people, this is where uh, an aircraft essentially is traveling through control uh, areas of control from one uh, air traffic control center into another. And this was, I think it was a uh, lumpar control was essentially handing over to uh, Ho Chi Minh. Yes, this is this is the famous sentence. Yeah. That, that half of the world now knows. Good night, Malaysian three seven zero. Yeah, contact Ho Chi Minh on one twenty decimal yes. nine. And after that, in two minutes between another between Igari and another waypoint called Baitot, the aircraft suddenly veered off course made a really sharp turn to the left and went heading for or it seems to be heading for the island of Penang that's on the yes that's west west of coast of of um, Malaysia essentially the other side of Malaysia so essentially the aircraft appeared to be traveling not back to Kuala Lumpur airport where it began where it took off but now essentially it was traveling directly west across uh, uh, the Malaysia Peninsula. Yes. And on the island of Phnom, there is an international airport with a runway able to support a Boeing 777. And that airport is actually, I measured it, and it's actually closer to... The airplane was actually closer to Penang than to Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, uh, I, I suppose that the important point there is in the event of something being wrong and the crew making a decision... Penang was often used to, as a yeah, diversion. Yeah, it, it will be probably one of the first diversionary airports you would think because obviously they're at 35,000 feet. They can't just suddenly come down to the any airport they're passing directly over. Um, so that would have been the natural diversion rather than to take slightly longer and travel back to uh, Kuala Lumpur. Yes, and in the in the safety investigation report, the team, the NX thirteen team, determined that this first turn at the Gari waypoint was made manually. And now, if we consider the most probably most popular and accepted theory that Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah hijacked the airplane deliberately and flew it, of course, to make it disappear. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is that if the airplane was perfectly functioning and flying at 35,000 feet on autopilot, why would a member of the crew disengage that autopilot? And, just to, just to, and to, to qualify, because people might be wondering, well, you know, why not? Or, uh, look, 
the, the reality yeah, is, in a, mod, in a modern aircraft, it's far easier to allow the aircraft in autopilot to fly itself, whatever it's, however it's been programmed or whatever navigation mode it's in, um, than essentially what we call hand flying it. Hand flying a large aircraft that size is not as precise, uh, and the autopilot is a much more precision-driven uh, unit within the aircraft to fly it. So th that that's that was the first oddity, because we know from the safety investigation report, and based on uh, recently released civilian uh, primary radar, that's not the secondary radar, because obviously once the transponder stopped transponding, we didn't have that, we didn't have a, a mode signal. That's another addition yeah. that, along with the, like the communication, also the transponder, which is a device that makes the airplane visible on the airport radars. Yeah. Also, shut off. Okay, so. Yes, I'm. I'm just sorry. I'll also elaborate on the autopilot thing. Yeah. Okay. Like not only the autopilot flies the airplane much more precise. It also eases up the pilot's job. The stress levels. Basically, so pilots the can consider monitoring. Yeah. As the higher the airplane flies, the the thinner the air is, yeah. and the more difficult it is to keep the airplane Stable, on course yeah. and keep it under control. So why would somebody who wants to hijack an airplane make his job deliberately more difficult if the if the autopilot was working? What what would make him to switch it off? It's like if you stole a car and you were captured by police, were you were being chased by police and you took, you took a scarf and covered your eyes and tried to drive blind. Mm -hmm. like that would have no, you would have no reason to do that. No uh, reason to uh, do uh, that uh, and it would just make your job harder. I suppose the, the, the other um, point uh, I think when people suggest there's a nefarious element, be it pilot hijack or, or somebody else hijacking the aircraft, um, probably taking the aircraft across Malaysia, passing over uh, military covered areas would not be the cleverest thing to do if you wanted to hijack an aircraft and particularly start pointing it towards um, countries like Thailand, Indonesia, uh, you're, you're really, at, I, I suppose, uh, the best way of describing it is, if you want to do uh, steal a car, um, you're not likely to steal a car that's parked outside the police station. And it's a little bit akin to that, and I suppose, going to the, 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 the discussion we're having on the autopilot, um, you know, if you're going to hijack a plane, why on earth, and, and you're the pilot, why on earth would you make things so much more difficult for yourself? Because you're the one in control. That's another point. If, if an experienced pilot was about to hijack an airplane and make it disappear forever, I mean, Malaysia is much more closer to the Pacific Ocean, which is way more larger and more isolated than the South Indian Ocean. 
I think the first option would be to fly the airplane into the Pacific, which was basically just around the corner. Essentially, fly, fly it northeast, east to northeast. Yeah, if flying, flying it east instead, you would get to the Pacific Ocean right ahead. You'd be flying it more towards the Philippines and out into the, the well, out into the Pacific Ocean, particularly as this is so early on the flight. Okay, so we don't believe that happened. What we believe happened is the aircraft travels across the Malaysian Peninsula. Most experts have generally now accepted as well that the aircraft was not under autopilot, that it was being hand-flown. And we can tell that from, I think there's about 38 data points we have um, from civilian uh, radar that, that tells us the idiosyncrasies that if you actually map this out and look at those points... This is not a, an aircraft that was flying in a straight line. It was actually meandering somewhat. If an aircraft flies on autopilot, it flies the ruler straight. Mm -hmm. But if it is, if it is, if it is flown by a human being, it's not that straight. But actually, what if you take the data from the primary radar and post it into Google Earth Maps? and you plot a straight line, you can see that the plane is literally meandering from side to side, flying from, and also changing altitude. And you, you've, you've, done, you've done some of this, this work, and you've plotted this, in fact, I think we were about looking at it um, two or three days ago. Let's... Yes, I did. Let's... I do want to say sure. no more information to that. Sure. That periodically changing altitude signifies a motion of an airplane that is typically out of control. That is called Fugoi cycling. And it is, it is an aerodynamical property of an object like an airplane, which is moving in a constant speed. But as the nose drops down, the airplane starts descending, it gains speed, then it starts to level off, and because it's flying faster, it is it gains more more lift and starts ascending back, which slows it down again. And, and so, and so the, cycle, the cycle begins again of, of that up and yeah. down fugoid cycle. That is typical for airplanes which were not flown by anybody. For example, if there, is for, if there is a hydraulic missing, which means that the pilot has no means to control the airplane, the airplane just goes into this motion. So I think that may signify that even the crew was at the point not flying the airplane either. The airplane was was not on autopilot, and the crew was not flying it. And that that doesn't mean that the airplane crashes. A lot of people actually think that if a pilot isn't flying the airplane or the autopilot, it just the falls out of the air. That's not the case. Just falls out of the air. But as long as both engines are working, and there is no like external damage or structural damage. 
or as like as the airplane is trimmed to fly like to cruise it will keep on flying it wouldn't be flying as straight and it wouldn't be as stable it would be affected by every single gust of wind or turbulence that might change its flight path that is why it tends to sort of meander but up, up till now um up till now uh formally officially the uh malaysian military although they've they've given us uh diagrams uh interpretations of the points that they believe they they picked up the aircraft on their primary radar military radar um some of us were somewhat skeptical because they hadn't officially released the, essentially what we call the raw military data other than just giving us depictions and making claims however um last year we got well two years ago uh, when the the um royal malaysian police report was leaked to me um what we got was the first serious corroboration that yes indeed the plane did travel back across uh, the Malaysia Peninsula and that was because a phone registered to the first officer essentially pinged a telco ground tower communications tower now that doesn't mean there was a call that just means essentially the way your mobile phone is constantly if it's switched on it's constantly pinging and looking for a network signal and very briefly for a second or two the first officer's phone was pinged by a telco communications phone tower so that kind of corroborates that the aircraft do certainly did appear to travel in the direction of Penang and because that's where was at Penang. Yeah. Now let's let's try and move on a little bit quicker. We're we're at yeah, okay. We're at Penang. Penang and Penang just for people it's it's like a it's not actually part of the mainland, it's it's like Penang Island. It's slightly uh, to the west off the west uh, uh, coast of, of um Malaysia. So we know that the aircraft is somewhere south of Penang Island. And then something happens. Then the the second turn comes. Yes. Now, if you if you take a look at the turn though, the turn is very different to the one. At Gari initially. At Gari, yeah. yeah, the first one, because it has much larger diameter, and as it. The plane is turning, I think, even for like ten minutes. So the question is now whether this turn was made deliberately or by atmospheric conditions, which is also possible. It was first my hypothesis, and it was it was confirmed by airport safety authorities that also think that that might be the case because that turn took the airplane 
about 10 minutes, which is... That's, which a is long, that's, a, that, that's an unusual... If, if essentially we go back to the scenario, the more nefarious scenario, why would someone who's going to make an aircraft disappear, well, first of all, why are they even flying it on, on autopilot? But okay, let's go with that. They're not flying it, they're hand-flying it, they're making things more difficult for themselves. And then they decide they're going to make a north, north, a northwest turn, um, and start uh, directing the plane up the Malacca Strait again. The question is, why does it take them eight to ten minutes to turn the aircraft in again a very lethargic, if we could use that word, lethargic sort of way, rather than not just simply do a normal twenty-degree bank. Uh, to the right and just simply that's it execute that and off we go we're up the Malacca Strait let's move on from um, Penang the aircraft is now going up the Malacca Strait at this stage nobody knows where this aircraft is like back at the ranch in uh, Lumbar Control and Ho Chi Minh everybody's scratching their head going where's this aircraft now the last fix was was near Madan. That's the northmost, I think, um, tip of Sumatra. Yeah, we're, we're right up off the coast of Sumatra now. So it's flown right up the Malacca Strait, across the Andaman Sea, and we're right up now further on. At this stage, I think, remind me, um, Christina, we're somewhere at around... 1810-1820-UTC-are-we-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822-1822
the SDU, which is a unit of the satellite unit at the airplane, reboots. This is what's known, like. some people who follow this case will, the, the SDU, what will also known as the SATCOM. Or the SATCOM. Yeah. SATCOM is the system itself. Yeah, that's the actual. Also. Yeah. And SDU is only the machine that's on the top of the airplane. Oh, this, this box wasn't responding for the past hour, which is also strange because this box is not possible or nearly impossible to be switched off during flight. You can turn off the autopilot, you can turn off the transponder, you can possibly turn off the ICARs. No, I mean, you, you can't technically... You can't. You could isolate it on a circuit breaker, an overhead circuit well, breaker. But what, yes. what you can do is, you can dial into the ACARS screen, and essentially, you can start disabling all its communication abilities. You can switch off the the. You can disable the SATCOM line, disable VHF, the HF. So you can knock off all its ability to communicate. If one goes down. It will well. Generally, the aircraft usually communicates um, through radio signals. That's it. So, if its radio signals go, then it will it will attempt to do it if there's an enabled subscriptions um, satellite service for it to do. Yes, and basically, I don't really see the point in here. Like, that's. ACARS is one thing, but then the satellite, that's a whole different level. I have i have researched how to possibly switch that off, but it is, it is very complicated and you might accidentally end up switching off other systems, which will cause you to lose control of the airplane. And yeah, I don't it's, it's one thing that... Definitely do not... Like, it's not standard for a pilot to know that. No, I mean, pilots in their training, they will have a broad understanding, just as if you buy a car, you understand broadly how that car works. You might even be able to do a little bit of servicing on that car. Um, but deep down, you're not going to know exactly how every single system works. And if I start pulling out, pulling, flicking this circuit, uh, this circuit breaker, another circuit breaker, those circuit breakers may control power to other units, which may be potentially critical units that you need to fly the actual aircraft. Yes, and even if you went for some reason uh, through such a process, then why an hour later you would suddenly switch, switch it back on? This which then makes yeah. no sense. Yes, so, so that also sort of at least for me, hence that the airplane, the, this, the whole incident was not a deliberate act. And something must have failed in the aircraft to produce. What failed, we cannot prove at this stage because we don't have the wreckage. We don't have much data. We, we have no idea what happened on board. Like, we have no actual evidence. We can only deduce. No, we, we, just, we simply have tiny bits of clues. And yeah. you can't isolate any one 
and place an assumption on it without looking at everything as a whole. Um, okay, now let's get to the third turn. Yes, let's let's deal with that and, and let's try and just move a little bit quicker on because we have a lot to get through. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. Yes. So, the, the, so the third turn. So the third turn. Well, that that one is the most tricky of all because the first tur uh, two turns were seen on radar. Yes, mm. both of them were watched on the primary radar, but the third turn, that was, we have practically no evidence that it happened. It, it was only concluded based on the Inmarsat data. And, yes, mathematicians concluded that, and then derived those seven arcs as the airplane proceeded. But the problem here is that all of the official calculations are based on the assumption that the autopilot was working and the plane was flying in a steady flight level, which might not be the case because we do not know if the autopilot was engaged. It certainly was not engaged until Penang, at least. I would even say that it wasn't engaged after Penang. And who wouldn't like switch it off then? We don't know. If if the pilots were incapacitated, then the plane would have just nobody would cause it to turn by some almost ninety degrees, I think. I'm not sure. It's, it's, it's a very when, when, when one considers that the, the aircraft was flying broadly, broadly, um, north, west, and then all of a sudden it does what is believed to have been a turn to the south. And this, of course, is picked up through the Immersat data, or what we now infamously know as the, um, okay. the ping rings, or the, rather the ping arcs. Just very briefly, because we're, we're gonna we're gonna sort of flip people about here a little bit, because we're gonna talk about something that hasn't been talked much about uh, outside of the official understanding of where the plane went. So just very quickly, Immersat had data to suggest the plane essentially flew in total for more than seven and a half hours. That is from the time it took off to the time essentially it was last pinged uh, the, the, the Immersat 3F1 satellite um, so Immersat presented the data the mathematicians and experts looked at it and agreed with essentially Immersat's conclusion that the plane almost certainly flew south into the southern Indian Ocean and that's essentially been the official theory for pretty much most of the last five years. Yes, I mean, the results they got suggest the airplane either flew north or flew south. Mm -hmm. Of course, it couldn't have flown north because it would have, it would, then it would crash. And it would have crashed on land, essentially. Yes, and since 
there were there was debris pulled out of the ocean and we know it did crash yeah, it finished up it finished up in the water yes it ended up on the water so the assumption was that it had to fly south well however the whole area majority of the area some, uh, I think we're up to 250,000 yeah. square kilometers which has been searched in boat millions like hundreds of million of dollars were spent and within five years not a single piece of the airplane was found not only they didn't find the wreckage never found anything like any physical piece of evidence of aircraft that would confirm that there there was an impact at yeah. the right place so now everybody has been exploring the theories that the plane either went south or north but what if the plane continued on the same direction I mean I've talked to one of the engineers who have done the interpretation and he told me that is this an engineer from the official investigation team no from the independent group IG. okay okay yes and he told me that the first bank value can mean two things. Now, I'm not going to go deep into... No, 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 let's not further, yes. That, that is beyond my expertise. And he told me that it can mean either that the plane was flying or was turning south or that it was descending at the rate of 2,050... 2,500 feet per minute. Of course, that option of the descent was crossed out since it was assumed that the airplane was flying on autopilot. But what if it wasn't flying on autopilot? I would certainly know that definitely from Igari to Penang, we're almost certain now that it wasn't at least at that stage. So I suppose where we're going is we are presenting a few what-ifs here. Okay, what if the aircraft continued um, to fly not on autopilot? Um, and what we're going to do now is examine the plausibility if there wasn't a final turn south. And essentially, the plane went west. All right. Okay. So, if that happened, basically, um, until I'm saying this because until the last radar fix, the airplane also appears to be changing, like heading a lot. So I and altitude. So I don't think that it was an autopilot either. Like from the sequence of from Penang to the last writer appearance or fix. So if it continues west, it would pass the Andaman Islands in the Bay of Bengal. However, if it continued flying west or like in heading 300, then it would it would crash or run out of fuel somewhere around or like above the land. So what I was thinking, or what most likely happened if, if the plane stayed on 
this course is that it slowly did go south. Not the way the IG says and the officials, but... You mean not, not a direct south, but more a uh, south yeah. to southwest? Probably drifted in the wind because the autopilot uses the satellite data to download weather information and correct for... Just when an airplane is flying, a wind is blowing against it and sometimes. If it's blowing against it in the 90 degrees angle, it will the airplane will shift from its path eventually. An autopilot prevents this, but if the autopilot was not engaged, the airplane would drift in the wind. So it is possible that the airplane drifted south or in the southwesterly direction, flew over Sri Lanka and passed, then it would it would pass or then it would pass over the Maldives. Yep. Since I found a hole in the radar coverage at Sri Lanka, at the north of Sri Lanka, there is a passage which has no radar coverage. And that is exactly in the path of the plane. Now, let's, let's try and move on. Um, we know in the initial days after the aircraft went missing, while everybody was over searching in the South China Sea and then uh, the, the Gulf of Thailand, the Bay of Bengal, the Malacca Straits. Meanwhile, we know of up to, officially, up to about 21 people uh, in the Maldive Islands reported an unusual large low-flying aircraft which seemed out of out completely out of the ordinary for them and they reported that on the morning of March the 8th so moving on just talk to me a little bit about that because and I want to get more as quickly as we can into your recent visit because Although those eyewitnesses have been interviewed many, many times by Australian, French, UK, uh, American journalists, uh, and they made police reports, they reported to the Civil uh, uh, Maldives uh, Authority, you took the task of going out um, a couple of weeks ago to the Maldives yourself and decided, I'm going to interview these witnesses again, and perhaps ask them a lot more probing questions that maybe should have been asked at the time but weren't asked at the time. I want you to tell me about your visit to the Maldives. Yes. <clears throat> so first of all, there were actually yes, 21 was the official number of people who have made a report that they saw this airplane. Now, what happened afterwards? Like, what they made police. They went to complain to the police about this, and then one of the witnesses connected, or like, asked himself, like, could it be this Malaysian airplane? So that is how it started. 
because of course <laughs> slightly but surely um of course this this was becoming global news at the time through march the 8th and march 9th over that weekend uh, in in 2014 <coughs> so slowly but surely having witnessed this low-flying aircraft these people started to ask the question is it actually possible that the aircraft that we saw was this craft so essentially all they were doing is what they felt was their civic duty to because just in case this this was so they never they never said it was yeah. an H-17. They just said they saw an airplane, a strange airplane, that was very abnormal, and it might have been 370, but they never said it actually was. So and next, what what interests me the behavior of the government of the Maldives. Because they took the reports and within less than a week they they just rejected them. They they publicly told the world that these people are lying. And they also I also interviewed the the chief of the island at the time who told me that the government forbidden him to talk to media, international media, and especially to investigators, mm -hmm. which is very, I, I just, I just failed to see why would somebody made such a request if they knew that they were lying. So, the Maldives authorities kind of, um, they kind of were betwixt and between, really, in what the official line was. Initially, their approach was, no, look, all these eyewitnesses, they're, they're lying. They couldn't have seen any, any aircraft at all. Then about a week, a week or two, in fact, it could have been even more than that, two, three weeks later, um, the Civil Aviation Authority announced that, oh, actually, hang on a second, Maybe they did see an aircraft, and actually, we think we know what aircraft it was. It was this um, propeller-driven uh, uh, aircraft called a Dash 8. And, and basically, that, that we're fairly sure now that that's what they saw. And I suppose for a lot of journalists at the time, and we know of some very significant journalists who just said, oh, that's great, we'll report that, okay, that's, that's all sorted out now. Um, but then people like uh, Glenn Gibson, yourself, and many of us started asking, hang on a sec, okay, fine, but, but show us, uh, sh show us the, the evidence that it is this aircraft. Now, take us from there what we, we started to discover. Yes, uh, basically, Mr. Blaine Gibson went to the Maldives prior to me in 2016. And he acquired records from from the Malay Air Traffic Control database from that day and found out that there was no such flight at the time and that the Civil Aviation Authority made it up, which I also find pretty surprising. Like, why would they lie? 
Well, essentially what they were claiming was it was a flight that did actually exist, but didn't exist anywhere near where the eyewitnesses said they saw an aircraft. This was a plane going in the complete opposite direction uh, in another place in the Maldives and at a different time. Which left us all, well, why are they claiming it's that, how, how on earth could it be that plane? That that aircraft was nowhere near uh, uh, Kuda uh, Huvadhu, where many of the eyewitnesses saw the aircraft flying extremely low. Yes, that is the thing. Also, near that island of Kuda Huvadhu, there is a luxury resort where one of the members of the staff was getting ready for work at the time of the sighting and he reported hearing a noise of jet engines he didn't actually see anything but he heard the noise of a jet engine now that person is European so he has a lot of experience with flying and most likely he has no connections to the Kudahuvadhu people because he was a hotel staff he was there only for a while or hotel staff are usually only are not very permanent no they can be transient people that move that and they you know. transit a lot from country to country from hotel to hotel so I would call that an independent person who also confirms hearing a jet flying over the island. So there are actually a lot of evidence. Just yes, the news the news like to report that only twenty one people saw the airplane. But when I visited Kudahuvadu, I learned that it was much much more. But they do not want to speak out because they're they, afraid. They, they've seen, they, they, they've seen the reaction to the original initial uh, witnesses and they don't want any official involvement or their, their names getting out uh, because they've saw the, the general treatment of the, uh, the, the the initial witnesses. And let's just clarify that. Um, and also the entire island, or like almost the entire island heard the airplane. Like they, just people were asking like, if there was this giant airplane flying over the small island, more people should have seen it or hear it. They actually did. They just don't talk about it. So that's and these, these, these eyewitnesses, uh, initially it was kind of, and, and we've seen similar with, with fishermen in the Malacca Straits, I think even off the, um, the coast of uh, Sri Lanka. There, there tends to be an attitude of, oh look, you know, these they're just uh, they're just humble fishermen and you know they they sure what would they know about about aircraft and and they're they're mistaken you know there, there's been a perception and a bad negative perception of those twenty one witnesses that somehow they're they're stupid they're they're you know they're not well educated people that's not what you found at all actually that is I think that the news the worldwide news which reported this misinterpreted of course at the Maldives like majority of people go fishing so mm -hmm. they are technically all fishermen but they like as they're not professionally like many of them are 
are like university educated people. One of the witnesses is working at the local hospital as an IT expert. Another one is working at the court and many others. And some of them have also worked because obviously the, the structure of the Maldives is heavily based around its hotels, tourism, resorts and airports. And we, we've discovered that some of these witnesses have actually either then or previously have actually worked in the airport as airport workers. So they're, they're incredibly familiar yeah. with, with um, aircraft. Or have traveled, like some yeah. of the witnesses have relatives at Sri Lanka, for example. So they have, they have flown large jets before. I do not think, like even my personal experience, those people are, I would say, very intelligent. And like, I do not know a person who would mistake a small propeller airplane for a large jet. Mm -hmm. Just, to, just, to, just to, to summarize, essentially, uh, timing was, uh, and this will be uh, Maldives time, um, I know you say in your report it, it was around uh, 6 to 6.30 a.m. Some people give a slightly later time. It Obviously, times vary. Uh, a low-flying uh, jet about, uh, they describe it as five feet long. They're, they're essentially visually uh, talking about an aircraft that they see in the sky, and uh, that, that, that's their interpretation of what they're seeing. And uh, they estimated it was at about 1,000 to 2,000 feet, producing a lot of noise. Um, it had its engines were wing mounted essentially on the wings they didn't report propellers they know the difference between propellers and jet engines um, they some some did some didn't some mentioned colors talk to me about that yes um, <clears throat> sorry uh, well, not all of the witnesses, of course, saw the airplane from the same angle and direction. Like, imagine the situation. It was early morning. Um, not many, well, not that many people were, most people were just doing their chores at the garden, talking to their family members doing playing. normal everyday things you do in the morning putting washing out um, on the way to work whatever. so on it was the sun was rising and suddenly this big airplane just out of nowhere it crossed over the island very fast like most of them were just shocked to see such thing over the island they just they were just watching it and t talk to me about what what witnesses on specifically identification on colors markings aspects of what they saw as also i wanted to add that that is why don't they don't have the precise timings because if you go out like Maybe, okay, maybe we do, because 
uh, Europe and America is a bit different. We go perhaps like hanging laundry with our phones, but they don't. They yeah, well, one, one must understand that while they're educated people, the, the culture is, I would describe it a little bit as, as if you went to somewhere like the Caribbean or Jamaica. The, the lifestyle is a little bit more relaxed. You know, this isn't like a bustling New York City if a plane flew over or London or Paris, you know, a low flying aircraft, mm-hmm. where suddenly, you know, within two minutes, you've got uh, tweets, you've got Instagrams, you've got f- people Facebook. Oh, look at this picture I took. Isn't it? Well, look at how low this plane, you know, that, you know, th- that isn't the culture in the Maldives. People don't go around with a mobile phone constantly, you know, attached to their hip. Like, perhaps, I mean, times change, so perhaps now... Of course, and, and that was five years ago. But back then, they they didn't. Like, most of them, I mean, if you're in your home, on your garden, or courtyard, you don't necessarily you don't carry a mobile phone out, would you? Yeah. So, that is also why, and it was really fast. They were like, they were like staring at the airplane. I, th- I think that's the other important aspect that probably hasn't come through with a, an awful lot of the reporting on this. This wasn't like they watched the plane for five or ten minutes. In some cases, it was it ten, was fifteen, minutes. twenty seconds, thirty seconds, because it was so low. It, it was really fast, and they. Before they would go inside the house, get their phone, and go back, the plane would be gone. So that is the impression I got. They just didn't have time to take pictures of it. I want to try and move us through because um, I'm conscious of the, the time as well. Let's... Um, okay, I'm going to ask a few bullet point questions. First of all, so don't take me I'm, I'm going to start talking about the colors now. Okay, sorry, okay, let's do the colors. Okay, well, now we have to realize that if you were watching an airplane from the bottom, and it has, like, the Malaysian Airlines planes, they have the stripes and everything, they have it basically on the upper part of the fuselage, and a lot of the witnesses saw the airplane fr- right from the bottom, they saw the belly, which is just gray, which is what they reported. And also, the sun was rising. Like, it, it was sunrise, so... So, some the, of the eyewitnesses, some of the eyewitnesses now, they didn't all report uh, uh, silver or uh, gray on the belly. Some just refer to it as, it was generally a white aircraft. Probably, the, the, mo- the, the most distinctive thing that... that, that struck them was this was a large white aircraft some yes, reported what, what shocked them is that it was it was very noisy it was flying from a direction that unlike normally they see no airplanes from it wasn't one of the one of the people stated that it was not flying in a particular direction it just seemed to be flying wherever it was very low and it was very big and yes it was very unusual and significantly <laughs> significantly none of them none of them reported that um, none of them reported that um 
uh, it had they didn't they didn't say it had landing gear down. They didn't say they had there was wheels or uh, anything like that uh, 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 engaged. Um, and that's what you would generally expect from an aircraft travelling at that height. That well, this aircraft must be about to land. So you know, where's the landing gear? That is another point that you brought me to. If an aircraft this big is flying so low, actually one of the inhabitants of Kudahuvadhu was is is a pilot for the Maldivian Airlines, and he estimated the height of the airplane because he's a pilot, so he knows. He said like thousand or two thousand feet, which is 300 meters, approximately. And large jets do not fly so low if they're not about to land. Mm -hmm. There is a law, or like there are flight rules, which usually they're called minimum, like I think it was minimum altitude, minimum permitted altitude, Mm -hmm. which I'm pretty positive is much higher than just 300 meters or it certainly would be yes and the nearest airport nearest suitable airport where a large jet can land is either Malay or gone yeah. south of the Maldives but that's still some 400 kilometers away so the airplane should be way high up in the sky but now, this airplane was flying so low, and it didn't have its landing gear extended, so no matter if it was 370 or not, it was violating the law. So it was abnormal in every way. It's just dangerous to fly mm-hmm. a large jet in such low altitude. Did you um, take any recordings of the... Well, first of all, how many eyewitnesses did you did you actually get to interview? Um, I personally interviewed, I think, five. Yes, five. Okay. And did you take recordings of those, um, those interviews? I didn't take, inter- like, my recordings, but I did... I prepared myself... Like, bullet point sheets or you questionnaires took, you took notes yeah. Questionnaires. yeah and i took notes on everything they said and what is interesting that yeah because some of the witnesses didn't speak english so i took a devahi translator from malay it was a woman from malay who had nothing to do with the witnesses or the case and she didn't know anyone at Kudahubadhu and never visited Kudahubadhu. And on the way back, she actually told me herself that she thinks that these people are not lying. Mm-hmm. So I guess that is an independent opinion. She got first-hand experience. It was interesting to hear. Now, um, after you interviewed the witnesses, when you got home, when you got back to the Czech Republic, uh, you began working on, I suppose, and correct me if I'm wrong, broadly what we call it is essentially looking at Google Maps, looking at the island of Kudahavaru, uh, and trying to plot 
where this aircraft came from, what kind of broad direction it was flying, and where it might have ultimately, wherever it was going, what, where was it pointed, where was it going. So just, just badly tell us a little bit about that. Um, actually, I, as I said, it MH370 could have not, if it flew west, it could not have constantly headed for the same heading because it would then go down on land, which mm -hmm. didn't happen. Because this, so, this aircraft was essentially approaching the island broadly from the northwest. That is an opposite direction. Yeah. But actually, where the plane, when I plotted the flight path, and also connected with the radar gap at Sri Lanka, it would pass first Maldives at the north, and then it would, as then then it would possibly return and get above the island. Like the airplane was unstable, literally. So. That is also the problem, that we cannot predict where the airplane went, because mm -hmm. there was no pilot in the cabin controlling the airplane, and no autopilot, the plane would just go back and forth wherever it went, wanted, based on the wind, and etc. Yeah, the flight path would be unorganized, would have no particular direction and the plane would just be flying wherever it was taken, yeah. Okay, and you, you also told me um, in the the extract of the report that you sent me, um, obviously the, the most important thing is because, you know, we, we don't expect every eyewitness to be an expert in what they see. They, what they see they report what they what they perceive they they see so you were conscious that it was important to do some kind of we call it a control test so i, I just want you to I, I i think that's important that that people know that the, the the work that you did afterwards then that essentially you wanted to test what people would recall in a controlled environment where you knew what they were looking at and what they reported back to you and then compare that to the actual eyewitness statements. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yes, because some people were so like I was I was myself interested in what would people like other people see if they just saw Malaysia Airlines 317 fly by them like this. So what I did, as also as a comparison to see whether, like, seeing the Malaysian Airlines plane, what do people like recognize the most, and how it matches up with the testimonies. Mm -hmm. I I generated. We are an app, the Malaysian Airlines airplane, like pictures, and two. And said the said, said the t lighting conditions for the time of the sighting, approximately, and 
took pictures of that. And I showed these pictures, like the details and parts, and angles, and showed it to different members of the hotel staff that I was staying at. Mm-hmm. And most of them recognized either the silver or the stripes. And they mostly like noted, pointed out the um, the red stripe, which is interesting because with the blue stripe they didn't notice it at all mm-hmm. at first, or like some didn't notice it at all. And some reported like different colors, like red and blue. Mm-hmm. Oh, red. Sorry, red and purple. Okay, look, I'm I'm now gonna ask some questions that probably some of our audience are going to ask you just fix your camera there because we're you're sliding down yeah um so i'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here okay so please don't take me up wrong and i've i've had some concerns about the previous eyewitness accounts that were taken and in particular not so much the official police reports that were recorded but rather later by journalists who went there and other investigators who went there. I have a deep concern about the fact that many of those journalists essentially went with the approach of, okay, what did you see? But basically, here's a picture of a Malaysia uh, Airlines plane. Did you see something like this? I, I have a, as, an, as an investigator and as a journalist, I have a major problem with that because I feel that you're just reinforcing... Um, what you want those people to have seen and identify with uh, so on your control test on, on playing devil's advocate I was concerned I, I privately expressed this to you that I felt that maybe it wasn't the wisest thing to choose a Malaysia Airlines plane that perhaps choosing a plane with similar kind of colours or logos or you know a similar 777 but a, a different airline might have been a better control test and then see what those witnesses uh, recall from that because there's now been so much exposure to the witnessing we know this is as an as you know independent investigators that um over time people can embellish maybe what they not and not deliberately but embellish what they kind of think they saw at the time and it wasn't actually what they saw at the time but they've kind of embellished it and mixed it with you know, uh, what other people said, uh, what what they saw, because you know the saturation of this uh, in 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 future weeks was so much that that that's that's my main concern with some of the uh, the eyewitness reports at the time that it it was almost instilled with them that you must have saw uh, Malaysia Airlines. It must have been a Malaysia Airlines plane, and that—that's why I have such a concern. And I think it's when you look at all the witness um, reports from those 21 people, and we know there are more. Um, when you really drill into it, a lot of them are not quite—they're they're not always as consistent as others. They're not always as um, full of as much detail. As some of the others, I, I think we probably have several witnesses who, you know, are very particular, you know, about the red line under the uh, line of windows, 
um, are very particular about, you know, that um, I had a grey underbelly, or some say, no, it was all white, or I remember all white. And we know, of course, sunlight at that time of the morning can change uh, an object, uh, uh, how it's reflected. But so just, just hit back at me, you know, if I, you think I'm being unfair, um, just from your own perspective. I, I mean, I of course that is that is always a big problem with the eyewitnesses, especially in in conditions like that, or you have where a lot of time has passed. And first of all, when I did the when I did the control test, mm -hmm. I didn't actually show them the Malaysian Airlines like n no attributes. I didn't. I the, the, the I, name the name wasn't on the aircraft. It was just colors. Yeah. Is what you're saying, yeah? I mean the control test, but I chose the I chose the segments deliberately so. The Malaysian Airlines logo and the tail logo and everything wasn't there, or like so it wasn't so it wouldn't influence the mm -hmm. people. So they would only focus on the colors because that is what the people that were the conditions the people on Kudahubadhu had. Like I don't think. Mm -hmm. Or like you don't usually it's very hard to read anything that's written on the airplane like from, particularly from the uh, even a plane that low particularly when you're looking up because most of what you're seeing is probably well depending on the inclination of the aircraft and um, what you're seeing is primarily the underwings the underbelly of the aircraft mostly most of the people saw the plane from the bottom so mm -hmm. they had no chance to see the delivery, mm -hmm. the actual livery colors that's typical for 370 but also with this like imprinting to the mind if we see like, most of the witnesses do not I compared like my testimony to the testimonies that they gave from day one like the first uh, interview that happened with them was uh, the magazine called, like the local magazine called Haviru. Yeah. It doesn't exist anymore, but yes, I found the original article and like over those five years, what the people say is like consistent. They don't add anything. The interview with Haviru was done at the day one. So they aren't changing anything. Now, over the I, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, debris. And, and you you raised this as well um, in, in the notes of the program. And, and, and yes, in, I just wanted to sure. add that I know that all of the witnesses always emphasized that what they saw was not MH370, or like they do not Absolutely. say they saw. No, none of MH370. them ever said, yeah. Yeah, I know they always emphasize it. Like they never, they do not say they saw the plane. They only want to say that they saw a plane on that morning, which 
which had similar colors apparently to the one that was lost, but they never said it was 100% 370. Absolutely. Now, um, you asked uh, David Gallo, um, and, and you've been communicating with him recently, and I, I suppose reflecting back to him, you know, what you've you found. But just talk to me a little bit about that conversation that you had with David uh, in regards to, I suppose, what what, we would, what what I would call and have noted as the debris controversy. Essentially what we're saying is, okay, we, we generally know the times that debris began to turn up uh, on the East African coast, right along, right down all the way to almost the Cape, South Africa. And the timing of when debris started to arrive from post June 2015, I think, July 2015. July 2015, that was the flapper on. So, talk to me about the, I suppose, the challenge that we would have. If we know the aircraft couldn't have went much further than the Maldives, I think that's it, that it, it's reasonable to say that. Yeah, on people who start talking, you know, nonsense about you're flying to Diego Garcia or or flew all the way to uh, Australia, then and you know, no. it, sorry, ain't ain't happening, didn't happen. Um, so if we we know the aircraft impacted water, we found debris that's washed ashore. Now the next you know, question, the debris tells us two things. First, the the aircraft impacted the water and it, it, it crashed somewhere in the Indian Ocean and also that the crash was very violent high speed and the plane was most likely out of control that is what we know about like from the debris yeah. itself no. and also uh, to go back to David Gallo yes, David yes. Gallo first to introduce him. David Gill is an oceanographer, a very renowned one who has worked on searching for an airplane before. Yeah, he, he was, his, his own company was involved in the uh, search for Air, Air France 447 in 2000, whatever, uh, some years back. It was, that airplane was lost in 2009 and it was also, there were also a lot of unsuccessful attempts to locate the airplane and it took them two years to find it and actually when David Gallo got to the case they found it within a week so that is why I decided to reach so to, reach to him so just to clarify move us um, the, the point I'm making is, the question is, what, what I'm bluntly asking is, I, I have reservations about whether the aircraft um, that was spotted in the Maldives was MH370. I still have an open mind. But if we work on the scenario that it was, let's just work on that one. We know it couldn't have got very far, much further from the, the Maldives. So it's got to go down in the water somewhere. So the next thing is... The debris that we've started discovering along the East African coast, my question is, 
in relation to your discussions with David Gallo, I have reservations as to the timing of that debris and whether the drift flow is consistent with an impact somewhere, we would believe maybe south of the Maldive Islands. So talk to me a little bit around that. Yes, that, that is an issue that I was one of my big concerns. And as I discussed that with Mr. David Gallo, and his opinion is very different to the opinion of the official scientists mm -hmm. which designed the seventh arc search. Like those scientists, they say that the plane couldn't have crashed at the Maldives because the debris then would not cross the equator or that the debris would go to the islands. And there, so far, there was no debris found. No, no, I suppose their argument is, uh, as I've been saying, you know, it must have been much, much more south in the, the, the uh, yeah. southern Indian Ocean. And basically, their argument would be that the timings of debris starting to arrive is more consistent with uh, the debris floating across east to west from somewhere much much further south than say the Maldives in other words the argument would be why didn't we have debris first of all potentially um, being pulled back towards the Maldives why, why isn't there debris in the Maldives and next of all why didn't debris turn up on the in places like Madagascar, Mauritius, Mozambique um, uh, and, and right along the, 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 the East African coast well, the thing with the debris is that we don't exactly know when did the debris like land there. Just the fact that nobody found debris before mm -hmm. June or July 2015 doesn't mean there wasn't debris already at the beaches. Those are like hundreds of kilometers of beaches at the East African coast. So we don't know when the the items that were found there. We we know some of them, but we can't be certain with others. Yeah. Excuse me. I said we know generally with some of the debris that turned up, pretty much that it must have been relatively recent. Other debris we can't ascertain that, and uh, particularly the debris that appears very clean and missing of an awful lot of biofouling which is suggesting it's been exposed for quite some time on a beach it's been cleared of barnacles by obviously birds um, it's been washed moved around uh, and, and it gets scratched cleaned up yes that is as we, we just when you find some debris we don't know what what happened to it prior to our find so it is fairly possible that it went it got washed out i don't know october 2014 for example then two weeks later a storm came so it went back to the sea it was swirling in the sea for another half year and then it went back to the shore we it doesn't know and what david gallo thinks about this he disagrees with the researchers and from australia and he says that the sea is, he thinks that the sea is too unpredictable to make, make any reverse precise, yeah. current 
um, simulations because as he said that he was working on a project regarding the the ocean actions based on the global warming and so he has a lot of knowledge regarding the flow of the currents, the surface currents and the ocean and he knows that he told me that the ocean really is unpredictable so it's very hard to mm -hmm. because it is not only the currents that change upon every season and based on weather and so on it is also the wind that that also influences where the debris is going to go and there aren't just currents in the sea there are also some vortices giant vortices that cause any potential debris on the surface of the ocean to circle around and just stay on the spot for quite a long time so that's it and okay also, sorry go on they also they also say that if the debris crossed the equator some debris should have ended up in Indonesia however just because the debris wasn't found yet doesn't mean the debris is not there well back to that adage aren't we that the absence of evidence is not evidence of itself yes. um Christina I, I, I want to move on to just in general um about your own perceptions of how the 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 media have have dealt with this case and in i suppose in general how because i've certainly found that over the last five years i never remember certainly i suppose that the most significant air crash priorities probably would have been for me with any kind of similarity was uh, air france in 2009 um off the coast of brazil um and i've found that the media seems to treat aviation tragedies disasters very much differently now than they used to what's your own perception of that now well i think that generally this i mean this aviation accident like a plane crash is always a big topic mm -hmm. and journalists and media generally really like disasters and major events so they can just publish a lot of articles based on that it gives them a lot of material to focus on and sell and by God, uh, MH370 has certainly run and run and run, and there are so many rabbit holes and loops, twists and hoops uh, with this story over the last five years. Um, yes, and the problem here is uh, the case of MH370 is different uh, because obviously the plane wasn't. Like, usually, the plane is the found within a few days, and investigations start. But here, the the investigators have failed to find the aircraft for five years. And this it's is this is incredibly rare in the sense that, um, even when I remember with um, 
I think it was Air Asia. Um, I, you know, th even two, three, four weeks is very, very rare to take that long to find the as what we would call the subsea resting site of an aircraft. And I'm talking specifically um, um, when there's uh, an accident at sea and an aircraft impacts the uh, the sea uh, or out in an ocean. Um, so this is why this case is so rare and so challenging because we have so limited information and as I always say and I, I'm speaking from a journalist perspective when and you could extend this to, to many situations criminal cases other kinds of investigations that, that media get involved in when there is a vacuum of evidence and a vacuum of information there are so many out there that are only too willing to fill that vacuum and often that vacuum is filled with speculation rubbish just complete you know that isn't helpful to anybody and certainly is not is not helpful to the uh, to the next of kin uh, and families and friends of of, of the you know the, the people trying to get accurate information and obviously social media has, has played a, a huge part in that because it is now so immediate um just your, your thoughts on, then on, on, on not just specifically MH370 by all means, um, you know, the impact of, of, of uh, social media. Uh, I, I, I suppose, I don't know what your own thoughts are. I kind of have the view that in one way it has been, I, I've seen a lot of very positive things because one, the family and the friends of those on board at least feel somehow directly supported by a wider network of people um, and there's been positive things with where there's been deputy fines where literally privately as as investigators and as a, as a journalist following this we've often been able to make conclusions about identifying a piece of debris before we even get an official confirmation of it you know, because people and networks of people are working together um, to, to source information and the, the, the power to be able to very quickly source that information. And sometimes our wheels, as it were, turn a little bit quicker than the official wheels of the investigation, who, of course, I understand, have to be so careful about anything they confirm, anything they say, uh, and, and tend to veer on the line of reluctance to confirm anything unless they're absolutely certain or sure about it so just your your general thoughts and, and of course the more negative aspect i suppose of of social media is that uh, people who really maybe don't know an awful lot about aviation think they know more than they know and then really start putting out a lot of misinformation and speculation and opinions which doesn't really help all the time the important thing to realize is that the purpose of the journalists in, for example, tabloid media mm -hmm. is not to inform people that much as earn publicity and cost, make, make the news. Sell, sell newspapers so, and sell advertising. So they would just write anything that would attract like readers' attention, even though it's a total nonsense. Mm -hmm. So, so we have to be very careful to 
take the right source of information, which are renowned media and certainly not certain tabloid media. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, okay, this weekend, in fact, tomorrow uh, is the in Kuala Lumpur is the the family's uh, fifth remembrance. Um. A, a ceremony. Um, we know that they're going to. And I think it's a positive thing. It surprised me that that they were able to arrange this. We know that the outboard uh, wing flap is actually going to be. And I, I hate saying this because it sounds so crass and a, a bit sort of uh, is going to be on display. But essentially, it, that that's what's going to happen. If people are going to be able to look at it up close they'll probably not be able to get quite so close to it but are going to be able to see it and I suppose the, the uh, I would imagine that the, the the family's intentions is to kind of remind people of how close you can be uh, to your loved ones and to an investigation and yet be so far away what can people do now who are who like yourself, myself, who remain interested in this, uh, to, to help in a, in a more positive way. That's a well, big that's a big question, isn't it? Yes, it is. First of all, don't believe like everything that is said in the news, mm-hmm. as I said before, and also especially for people who live. And Africa and Australia and perhaps even Indonesia and Australia more so yeah. now the way those jars work that it is not you know although it's five years on it is not absolutely inconceivable now that debris that has done a full a complete full circumnavigation of the entire Indian Ocean it is not out of the realms of possibility that we could start to get debris in fact I think right up till a year ago the the Australian Transport and Safety Board, the ATSB, uh, started notifying people that, look, be on the watch. I know this is five years ago, four or five years ago, but it is not entirely impossible now. We could start to see debris that has fully circumnavigated the entire Indian Ocean, turning up in Australia, Tasmania. Yes, there could be. The debris is still in the ocean. There is a lot of it. When an airplane hits the water, it breaks up into a million parts especially if it was a violent impact a like in case of yeah. 70 and yes if you if any of our public or our the audience which is watching mm-hmm. this now lives at these areas like Africa Australia India Madagascar Mauritius all those islands yeah. around there yep also all of the islands of the Indian Ocean I prompt them to go to the beach and look just look on the beach for anything that looks unusual for anything that is that reminds of an aircraft in case you want to know more you can contact the interviewer Mm-hmm. I can give you more information if you would like to yeah, on how maybe, to identify maybe perhaps the we'll, we'll, what we'll do is um, 
in the A's and I, I think uh, Grace and some of the other relatives also put out a, a sort of information sheet maybe we'll see if we can source that and put it in a link okay. that and people uh, to tell people what specifically they, they should be looking out for because I think we all believe there's debris not just still probably floating in the ocean I'm sure there is but there's probably still debris sitting on I'm certain convinced of it right from beach. Mozambique even possibly potentially as far north as Kenya the Kenyan coast right down is probably still sitting there um in well certainly in remote places but obviously we know beaches get clean and that's the other aspect i suppose of that as well you know beaches are cleaned and if there isn't a huge amount of publicity or public attention it's quite possible that over the years you know important pieces of debris have just been discarded and, and cleaned up and just nobody knew they were dealing with a part of a, an aviation crash is that's the thing that also such action does not cost anything it mm -hmm. is it won't cost you anything to just walk around the beach and look for any parts that might come from that airplane but yet it will still help the investigation a lot because every piece that is what the next of kin says every piece is may, may hold the clue yeah. yeah that is the only there are, those are the only things we've got. Recently, I succeeded to create a network of non-government organizations at the Seychelles that agreed to inspect the beaches of the remote islands and nature reserves for debris, which I think is a big success. And that is, I'm trying to create a chain of people who would systematically look for the brave mm -hmm. because any, the more people look for the brave, the more, the bigger the chances we find, the bigger the chances are that we find something and that something might tell us more about what happened and give answers to the people who deserve them who have been waiting for them and have gone through mm -hmm. things that we will never imagine. Looking to the, the future, uh, Christina, um, we've obviously had two previous searches. Um, what are your thoughts on any future possibility of a renewed search? And, and if so, your thoughts on where that should be? Or... Are we now at the stage where we need to accept we know a lot less maybe than we thought we knew about this? We still haven't found the aircraft. The official uh, searches still haven't found the aircraft. Is it time now for us all to be a little bit more open-minded about where we should be searching? Yes, I think, and David Gallo agrees with me on this. He prompted that thought too that now since the two big searches failed, it is the good time to step back and review everything. Mm -hmm. He said that there, that is what was done In Air before France, Air France seven, was yeah. found. They, when they couldn't find the plane for two years, they decided to step back and review all the information they have and consider whether they couldn't have made any false assumptions or they explored every possible scenario or didn't they make any mistake? And after they did this 
and but one extra week they found the plane hmm. within a couple of days and perhaps as well with with, with um yes i think that is what we need to do yeah and, and probably as well with the fact now that we have sort of supposedly a non-active annex 13 safety team and um, that maybe we're coming to a time where that that kind of complete 100 percent review of this case needs to be done independently by skilled independent people outside of um the official previous uh, annex 13 investigation that that we need to get all minds together now to completely review uh, what what's on the table and and what the next step would be because ultimately whoever gets involved in a search be it ocean affinity or some other uh, company or, or partners they're going to be want they, they, they will need to be convinced that there's a high chance of success and if they don't see that they're certainly not going to waste their money if they can't be convinced that you know where they search next is likely to be successful or have well, a high probability of success I, I would be really happy if because based along with several triple seven cap with triple seven captain and several 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 other pilots we have done fuel calculations and concluded like estimated a possible area where the plane could have crashed like if if the plane seen at Kudahubadhu mm -hmm. was 370 and that area is quite small it is about 4,000 kilometers square while for example Ocean Infinity claims that there's that their abilities are to search 1,500 kilometers square of ocean per day. Per day, which is extraordinary how we've advanced since 2014 and where we are now. I mean, it, it would have been unthinkable in 2014 for the last search to have achieved what it achieved. I think it, they, they cleared nearly 130,000 square kilometers in the space of, I think it was three and a half months, three and a half, four, maybe four months. Uh, that that no, would have been was, unthinkable in 2014. the area yeah. in four days. Yeah. So I think they should do it. That would, that would, I mean, that would, that is also a way how to really confirm or debunk the Maldives theory. Yeah. If the ocean is searched there, plus almost the entire seventh arc was searched and nothing was ever found there. And there are experts oceanographers like David Gallo, mm -hmm. who raised questions about why there is no surface debris at the Seven Arc. Not a single piece of the airplane, as I said before, was seen or found. Or confirmed in anything they did pull up. Excuse me? I said are confirmed in the initial uh, surface search uh, in the weeks after March um, 2014 that that nothing was found that could be confirmed to belong to the aircraft obviously we know there's an awful lot of you know stuff floating around in the oceans that's just the nature i'm afraid in the world we live in now that, that of course, if an airplane crashes into yeah. the water it is going to make a lot of debris yeah and despite any storms or so on there should it should just 
if they're looking for it, they should see something. It it always was like that. Mm-hmm. And here, there is, like, no debris at all. There was no debris, even, like, two weeks after the crash. And I think that the debris would still be there. Hence, um, at the Maldives, nobody was looking. Yeah, and the, the argument, can that be as easily explained away with... Publisher, look, it's a big ocean, you know, and and it took us two or three weeks to get there, you know. Is that really good enough? I'm not so sure. Yes, that is that is one major problem with yeah. the seventh arc, and also like majority of the areas there were searched and nothing was found. Mm-hmm. So I think it is time to consider other scenarios, and most importantly, to not give up. Because if we give up on this, no, we can't give there up. There are people in danger. We don't know why the plane and crashed. As long as, long as we don't know, it can happen again. Yes, it can happen again, and more people can die. Mm-hmm. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. It can happen uh, to anybody. Anybody above. and the, the the thousands upon thousands of people who who fly um, every day are endangered every single day. That is the reason why we investigate air crashes in the first place. To find out what caused the crash and avoid happening again. Avoid it again. Avoid it happening again. Exactly, and and uh, as I keep saying to people over and over again, it is not to point the finger or blame someone. That's not what an official investigation yes. is about. That's entirely separate, and that's to do with a criminal investigation. Uh, Christine Pokona, it's been a pleasure yes. talking to you today. You probably like me are exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. We, we covered a hell of a lot, um, and we certainly ran on uh, a lot longer than I thought. But however, it was a pleasure, and uh, thank you for giving up some of your time. Just incidentally, before we go, uh, Christina, uh, is there and and you don't have to affirm or n- not confirm uh, the report that you have done up on the Maldive uh, sightings, the the eyewitnesses. Uh, and, and some of the post analysis that you did is there any chance that perhaps in the coming weeks months that we we may see that publicly online that you may release it or are you not quite in that so position yet perhaps not currently maybe okay. in the future in as the well. future okay because right. of the activities i'm involved now yeah. in i cannot or i do not i prefer not to publish I, I anything understand that. yeah okay christina it was great talking to you today um, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you. You take care. Okay. Nice. Bye bye. And goodbye. Okay. Um, we're not going to have any incidental music to finish out this evening. I want to first of all, most importantly, thank uh, Christina for joining us um, from the Czech Republic. Um, sharing with us all our analysis on her reporting on the eyewitnesses in the Maldives. Um, look, if there is one thing I've learned over the last five years, and particularly in the last year, it's kind of to have a little bit more of an open mind, which can be a challenge for me because I'm very much science-driven. Um, I want to just say, just in case, in reflection of the uh, the interview with Christina, 
um, if you thought I was pushing her it was just that we were both conscious that we had a hell of a lot of information and detail to get through so if you thought I was pushing her in any way I apologize for that um, but there, there was a hell of a lot as you can see in that interview um, look all I can say is Brian Alan Gibson has interviewed the eyewitnesses in the Maldives Christina has and many other journalists have and I think all of them take away the fact that they're genuine and they are simply doing a basic civic duty in reporting what they see. There is no doubt throughout this world every day there is low flying aircraft witnessed by people that seem unusual but the reality is most of the time that's because an aircraft has just taken off or is just about to land at an airport and that's what's significant about the Maldives eyewitnesses that's what makes it somewhat different than other reports that eyewitnesses have made about Malaysia Airlines MH370 to this date there has never been any proper identification of what aircraft those eyewitnesses saw none of them have ever claimed that it was MH370 they have simply said what they perceived or saw now as many of you know who followed these episodes on Radio Spoil I, I'm very much factually and evidence driven and I'm reminded of what Blaine Gibson said and I'll, I'm paraphrasing you either accept what the eyewitnesses in the Maldives state they saw if it was MH370 or you accept the Immersat data and the experts that have analyzed that I'm not a satellite expert it's one or the other you they, neither can coexist it's one or the other if the eyewitnesses did genuinely see MH370 there's something seriously wrong with the Immersat data and because I'm scientifically and factually driven I'm I remain and some of the reasons I outlined with Christina I'm circumspect about the eyewitnesses that doesn't mean I'm saying they're lying or they're not right they simply reported what they saw
it's one or the other it's much like theories that claim the aircraft uh, may have actually uh, impacted the southern Indian Ocean beyond the 40 uh, degree latitude again science tells us that if that's the case the likelihood that it flew up the Malacca Strait all the way up to Sumatra simply based on fuel models doesn't correspond so it's 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 one thing I, I, I've always had to consider and too many people pull all this data together and claim things but don't realize that certain aspects of a theory that they put forward is ultimately flawed because you know the aircraft can't get to a place based on its fuel if it flew up the Malacca Strait it can't get to 42 43 degrees south and that's where we are you know and I'm learning to keep an open mind but look that aside I want to more focus on the weekend that's just passed uh, the remembrance event in Kuala Lumpur and uh, I want to share some final thoughts uh, with you um, I felt there were some positives to come out of this weekend's remembrance event in Kuala Lumpur um, particularly I felt it important that for the first year I, I felt that the Chinese relatives were much much more involved with this year's event than maybe previously wasn't the case I'm delighted they have their own uh, next of kin dedicated website that's been set up for them um, anybody that's traveled to China as a tourist as a business person knows the difficulties in China that people living there have in accessing information now both um, Ocean Affinity and the Minister for Transport for Malaysia underlined that they were open to a renewed search now that reality for me seems some way off yet Minister Anthony Loke was I felt once again very firm in the stance from the Malaysia government and when I say the Malaysia government I mean this government and its previous government that was in power that a renewed search can only be considered if there is credible and concrete evidence contained in any search proposal and despite CEO Oliver Plunkett's Ocean Affinity and his belief that um, his company has further improved its subsea search equipment in the past year proven with two recent successful searches for the Argentine submarine San Juan 
and the South Korean vessel Stellar Daisy, the challenge remains convincing the Malaysian authorities that a more finite search area can be identified. Now, I've touched on this conundrum here and elsewhere um, in group discussions publicly in articles that the next of kin and the speakers very much reflected this as well. Malaysia remains the lead investigation state and the state of registration for Malaysia Airlines. It's one thing to rightly point out the need for credible and concrete evidence. I, I, I get that. I understand that. But that declaration also comes with a heavy weight of responsibility and it must not be used as a deliberate roadblock. It must be accompanied by it must not be accompanied by a lack of action. It can't be used for that, <coughs> that purpose. <coughs> the Malaysia authorities must facilitate a forum where that can actually happen. And not just wait for a search proposal to be pushed in a mailbox. That isn't the role for Ocean Infinity or any other company that takes on the task of finding Malaysia Airlines MH370. Malaysia must work with independent groups, with Cicero, Geoscience, with multiple other bodies, people who understand what they're talking about and have analysed this for years. They have to work with them not wait for a proposal to come in the door. Now, it was interesting that Don Thompson, delivering his presentation at the event on behalf of the uh, IG, the, the independent group, highlighted the need and importance for study on data of uh, multiple previous flights of MH370, or as we would refer to it as the actual aircraft registered 9M MRO and not just the what we have seen the single previous flight which was MH371 um, uh, which was the uh, previous Beijing to Kuala Lumpur flight and a willingness for Malaysia and its neighbouring countries to release any raw military data they possess on flight MH370 and you know, I would feel more confident of progress in this if on the formal 5th anniversary of Flight MH370, which is, which is March the 8th, Malaysia authorities release some form of proposal for a full review, call it a think tank if you want, involving multiple official and independent investigative partners and a committed path forward. Now, look, some of you will have seen, um, I think it's ABC's uh, Channel 9 uh, documentary this weekend, um, which featured uh, 
Danica Weeks um, and she had a meeting with the Malaysia PM whether that can provide an impetus I don't know it, it for me it remains to be seen I, I didn't take any real full commitment beyond what was said in the interview that was that was made public uh, so um I'm less I'm less convinced that necessarily we're going to see anything more uh, on the commitment side and if not and because if not we are going to remain in the realm of empty words and a complete and total lack of action and that's not acceptable thank you for listening um, in the links below this uh, podcast and videocast you can see all the um, you know you can find our social media links you can find the uh, the website uh, and once again thank you for um, for joining us and thank you for our guest Christina um, joining us and making the effort to actually go to the Maldives and interview eyewitnesses I bid you good day You have been listening to Radio Aspile, a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media and presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney. Please feel free to leave a comment and visit our links provided in this podcast production. Thank you for your support.